All right, let's go ahead and uh, pick back up. Find a seat. Grab the door. Oh, yeah. Thanks. All right, so page eight. Page eight. Thus, to pledge allegiance to God, point two, who is essentially long-suffering, we also have to pledge allegiance to the consequences of that long-suffering, which has always been the suffering and martyrdom of the prophets. This is the point of Matthew 5, when uh, everybody is following him, expecting him to go into Jerusalem, set up the kingdom that will endure forever. He's doing signs, the great multitude. He comes and says, Blessed are you, you who are not greedy, who mourn over wickedness, etc. He said, Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. In the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. 1 Thessalonians 2, For you brothers became imitators of God's churches in Judea, which are in Christ Jesus. You suffered from your own countrymen the same things those, those churches suffered from the Jews who killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out also. This then is the key to overcoming the world, is the embracing of martyrdom at the heart level in hope of the resurrection, in context of the res- resurrection. Without a fundamental commitment to representing God even unto death, the world will still have sway over the church with the threat of death. Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God. So again, uh, with the theology of the kingdom of God here, the messianic kingdom, then the, dec- the prophetic declaration is the kingdom of God is at hand. Lift up your eyes, your salvation is near, Luke 21. For the accuser of our brothers who, is accused, who accuses them before God, for our God day and night has been hurled down like Isaiah 34 and Haggai 2, the shaking of the heavens and the earth, the, the sword bathed in blood in the heavens that descends upon the earth. The shaking of the heavens is a sign of the imminent judgment of the earth. They overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony concerning the kingdom, the salvation. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. So it really is the... The correlation between a real belief in the resurrection and the day of the Lord is directly correlated to to the church not shrinking back from death. And in context to the end of the age, page 9, the great falling away is ultimately in context to the mark of the beast, the coercion at the threat of death for the church to buy and sell to continue to live And it's that coercion that defines who actually believes in the resurrection of the dead or not in the day of the Lord. It's going to become really clear who actually believes in the day of the Lord and the resurrection of the body and who does not in the days to come when people have no other choice but to choose life in this age or life in the age to come. It'll be real simple. And the persecution and the martyrdom that will come that will produce the great multitude from every nation, tribe, and tongue in the great tribulation is what will also produce the great falling away of people who do not become martyred but take the mark. Uh, Exemplified in the parable of the sower, Matthew 13, As for what was sown on rocky ground, that is the one who hears the word concerning the kingdom and immediately receives it with joy. They rejoice in the resurrection. Yet he who has no root in himself, but he has no root in himself, but endures for a while, or the NIV says only a little while. And when tribulation and persecution arises on account of the word concerning the kingdom, immediately he falls away. D, the testimony of God to humanity typified in the completion of the martyrdom of the saints is the primary measuring rod of redemptive history. In other words, the, redemp- the completion of redemptive history happens in context to the completion of the testimony of God, which is typified in the martyrdom of the saints. 
And so you often hear a number of, quote, timing indicators concerning the coming of Jesus. And I appreciate those, but the primary timing indicator that is laid out in the book of Revelation is the completion of the martyrdom of the saints, which is the completion of the testimony of God. And this makes sense if you view redemptive history as amnestic and that God is giving redemptive history is essentially the testimony of God of his restraint towards rebellious humanity that will find completion on the day of the Lord. And therefore, the completion of the testimony of God ends in the day of the Lord and is typified or exemplified in the martyrdom of the saints. Revelation 6, when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they maintained. They called out in a loud voice, How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood, referencing the day of the Lord. Then each of them was given a white robe and they were told to wait a little longer. Till when? When does the avenging of the blood happen? Until the number of their fellow servants and brothers who were killed as they had been was completed. So then immediately the next chapter is chapter 7 in which you see the great multitude. And the bizarre thing about chapter 7 is that I believe chapter 7 and chapter 8 are tied together. Likewise, the releasing of the seals and the intercession of the saints who were martyred in chapter 6 are tied together. So also are the releasing of the trumpets judgments and the intercession of uh, the saints in chapter 7. Because you have, after this I looked and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, language, standing before the throne. They cried out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And this isn't just a it's it's twofold when you say that because the exact same intercession is made in Revelation 19 concerning the destruction of Babylon and the harlot on account of the blood of the saints. And so the, the Revelation 7 is not only a rejoicing in the salvation, in the resurrection that they are going to receive because of their martyrdom, but it is an intercession, salvation. How long, O Lord, until the salvation of him who sits on the throne, him who rules sovereignly over the wickedness that just, that just crushed us. So uh, he says to one of the elders, these are those who come out of the great tribulation. And then the end of chapter 9, when he opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven, okay, which is the, the silence in heaven is in context to the great multitude that is standing before the throne. Immediately before that, there's silence among the great multitude for about half an hour. The, the angel comes forward with the, with the trumpet. Another angel who had a golden censer came and stood at the altar. He was giving much incense to offer with the prayers of the saints, assuming the saints that are in heaven that are being silent just before that, uh, declaring uh, salvation belongs to our God. On the golden altar before the throne, the smoke of the incense, together with the prayers of the saints, went up from God, from the angel's hands. And so the prayers of the saints that have come out of the great tribulation are going into a, uh, a, uh, a uh, what's it called, censer going into a censer, and then they rise up as they're presented by the angel. The prayers rise up before God when they're presented by the angel. And the angel takes the censer in light of the intercession, how long until you avenge our blood? And he casts down a sign upon the earth that the avenging of the blood of the martyrs is about to happen with rumblings, earthquakes, etc., so too, the dominant theme of the book of Revelation, besides the temporal judgments, which is obviously the primary theme, but the, the theme and context to the temporal judgments in this light is the culmination of wickedness upon the earth expressed 
and the persecution of the saints. And so you have the persecution of the saints in chapter 2 and 3. You have the persecution, obviously, of the great martyrs in chapter 7, the two witnesses in chapter 11, the destroying of those who destroy the earth, the rewarding of the prophets, and the destroying of those who persecute the saints and the prophets in chapter 11 at the seventh trumpet, which is regarded by many as the definitive moment for the beginning of when God takes up his reign and begins to to rule, and that is in context to destroying those who destroy the earth. And he says, uh, uh, chapter 12, um, those that love their lives not unto death, the dragon makes war upon those who hold to the testimony of Jesus, chapter 12, 13. The beast is given power to make war against the saints to conquer them, chapter 13. The patient endurance in light of the mark of the beast, chapter 14. I believe the harvesting of the earth's righteous in chapter 14 is actually, that is a harvesting of, of righteousness, uh, uh, of a witness in the, uh, that, is, that is the kind of flip side of the uh, crushing of the grapes immediately after that of the wicked. And then those beside the sea of glass who are victorious over the beast, chapter 15, and I just put down on the bottom there, the rest, the culmination of the book of Revelation is all revolving around martyrdom and the blood of the saints. And so Revelation 15, I saw what looked like a sea of glass mixed with fire standing beside the sea, those who had been victorious over the beast in his image, over the number of his name. And how are you victorious? You're victorious by enduring martyrdom in righteousness and in restraint, in a reflection of, uh, uh, of Jesus himself. Which again is by like Revelation 12, the, uh, the, uh, the, the uh, blood and the testimony and loving their lives, hoping for the resurrection. And then the song that they sing, the song of Moses, Deuteronomy 32, and then the song of the Lamb. The song of the Lamb is... Great and marvelous are your deeds, O Lord God Almighty, in reference to the day of the Lord and those that point to the day of the Lord. Just and true are your ways, King of the ages. And so the Lord Almighty, again, like we talked about, isn't just religious phraseology. It is Lord God Pantocrator, ruler over everything, absolute sovereignty over everything in light of the rebellion and wickedness on the earth. Just and true are your ways, king of the nations, who will not fear you and bring glory to your name. All nations will come and worship before you. Uh, in light of the day of the Lord, Revelation 16, then I heard the angel in charge of the waters say, you are just in these judgments, you who are and were the holy one because you have so judged. And so he's giving commentary on the seven bowls of wrath, the completion of the wrath of God. And he says why these seven bowls of wrath are happening is because, verse 6, they have shed the blood of your saints and prophets and have given them blood to drink as they deserve, which is the, it's the, it's the typification of their wickedness. Everything else is wicked for sure and is fuel for the fire, but to murder those who represent God, that is the ultimate crime in the eyes of God. And so this is why martyrdom and the shedding of the blood of the saints is so central. They've, and you have given them blood to drink as they deserve. Yes, Lord God Almighty, true and just are your judgments. Revelation 17, this is where you get into the critical Babylon passages and what is happening in context to Babylon and what... And and what is driving the whole mechanism. And what's driving the whole mechanism is the culmination of wickedness under the Antichrist expressed in the persecution of those who bear witness to the day of the Lord. And he says, uh, On her forehead was written the name of mystery, Babylon the great mother prostitute of the earth's abominations. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs, 
And then when you have fallen as Babylon the Great in Revelation 18, rejoice over her, O heaven. Rejoice, saints and apostles and prophets. God has judged her for the way she treated you. Then a mighty angel picked up a boulder the size of a large millstone, threw it in the sea, and said, With such violence, the great city of Babylon will be thrown down, never to be found again. In her was found the blood of the prophets and saints, and of all who are killed upon the earth. Revelation 19, after this, I heard what sound, after this, the, the declaration of the angel concerning the judgment of Babylon for, the, for uh, persecuting the saints. After this, I heard what sounded like a roar of a great multitude in heaven shouting, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God. A repetition of the Revelation 7 declaration. For true and just are his judgments. A repetition of the Revelation 15 declaration. He has condemned the great prostitute who corrupted the earth by her adulteries. He has avenged on her the blood of of his servants. And then Revelation 20, he vindicates the martyrs in when Jesus sets up the kingdom. I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony for Jesus, because of the word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or his image. They came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. And it's not that it's only the martyrs that come to life and reign with Christ, there's obviously all uh, many other saints that return with Jesus in the clouds, 1 Thessalonians 4. The point is, is that, the, that God is highlighting the centrality of martyrdom of the saints and the vindication of them in the kingdom to come. Please stop calling me. Okay, so, uh, so it's not only you get a vindication in the resurrection, a justification of God and of the saints and of their righteousness in the resurrection, not only to the wicked of the earth, but you get a vindication before Satan who is bound and thrown into a prison and all the principalities in the air. And so this is uh, uh, this verse is actually what was burning on my heart today, that what is happening here is uh, more about a testimony in my own life to... Uh, the powers and principalities that, because, you know, like you expressed yesterday in the fasting team meeting, you preach on the resurrection of the dead and you preach on the kingdom of the Messiah and all of a sudden people get angry and demons get stirred up for this just no reason. And those who are righteous, they love it. It's like, yes, this is truth. And those who are wicked want to argue and demons manifest and it's really... And the point is, is that we don't live just before men. There are powers and principalities in the heavens, Colossians 1, that God has even established and that he maintains even in their rebellion. And like Job, Job gives a witness to Satan himself concerning his belief in the day of the Lord and his faith and is not backing down to it. And so have you considered my servant Job, Job 19, and all of the swirl that's going on, he says, I know this, that I will see my Redeemer with my own eyes in my flesh, he will stand upon the earth. And so likewise, this is mostly about what today is, is a declaration not only to us in this room to galvanize us for what is coming, to endure it, but also a declaration that this is what the church is going to go through, and this is what God is going to shape the church into in the days of head, in the days ahead, like Ephesians three, his intent, which is what Daniel quoted to me in the break, his intent was that now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly realms, according to his eternal purpose, which he accomplished in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And the primary mystery being that the suffering had to happen before the glory. And so the declaration, not only to men, that did not the Christ have to suffer first, Acts 17, but also to the demons and angels that though you killed him, this was simply part of the administration of God's plan that your killing him has actually disarmed you, Ephesians 2, and will lead to your utter demise at the end of the age and that the church acknowledges it and they embrace 
that reality unto martyrdom, even as a witness to you. And so, so it said. Okay, so page 11, the false witness. The, a false witness will also arise at the end of the age, which will pervert the witness of the gospel. This false witness is ultimately designed to avoid the embracing of suffering and martyrdom. So Matthew 24, then you'll be handed over to be persecuted and put to death. You'll be hated by all nations because of me. At that time, many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other. I just have, we just, just for the record, we honor and bless Kelsey Hayes, just because it has to be said. Her faithfulness before the Lord, this really is. The Lord led her into it. He appeared to her in a vision and said, Will you drink the cup of my suffering? She said, Yes, and she has been faithful to it. And it is a declaration to the powers in the heavens that the day of the Lord is coming and they will be judged. So Matthew 24, You will be handed over and persecuted. At that time, many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other. And many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. And so you have false prophets... Okay, so they're clearly, the, the, the context of false prophets is not mystical, new age, you know, demonized. Woo. The false prophets throughout the Old Testament are those within the assembly of the righteous, within Israel, that claim the name of God, of Yahweh, yet lead the people into unrighteousness. And so there's many false prophets that will arise amongst the assembly of the righteous at the end of the age, and they will, uh, they will lead people into not embracing the martyrdom. The false witness, point B, will be founded on false ideologies primarily that undermine love unto death. And these false ideologies, it's the false theologies that lead to a lifestyle of not embracing the cross and denying self. Because it happens in all of our lives. This is how it happens. It happens when there's the poopy diaper at 3 in the morning and you're really tired and you don't embrace it and you let your wife deal with it. And the anger foments in the middle of the night across the bed. And you have the last piece of whatever pie in the refrigerator and you don't give it away. You take it for yourself. It's an entire lifestyle of this is how I'm living now for the greatest blessing and reward. And it's not some masochistic, uh, you know, that we have to beat and, and flog ourselves continually. But it's just simply an embracing of suffering out of love. And in every situation, we press ourselves in light of the day of the Lord and in light of our own Lord Jesus emulating him, we deny ourselves at every step in which the Spirit highlights it to us. But it's, a, it's theologies that invalidate that, that lead to a lifestyle of little things one after another, day after day, of not embracing the cross that will culminate in, uh, in uh, not embracing martyrdom at the end of the age. So one, this false witness is exemplified in Peter's confession and subsequent denial. Peter's stumbling block, like many in Israel at the time, was the rejection of the suffering before the glory. Now this is an easy way to understand because our situation is a little bit different from, uh, from, uh, from Peter's situation. Suffering... Before glory, okay? So, uh, this helps to weed the issues out. So, Peter's issue, like the stumbling block for the Jews, it's foolishness for the Gentiles and a stumbling block for the Jews. The foolishness for the Gentiles is Acts 17, when Paul says in Athens... 
declares that there's one God who's created heaven and earth, that he's appointed men, their boundaries, he's sovereign over them. He's let them go their own way, but now he calls them to repent because he's appointed one man to judge the living and the dead, and he's proven it by raising him from the dead. And everybody's like, that is complete foolishness. Resurrection, what? And so the, it's, the, it's the Gentiles that deny the glory. It's the Jews that deny the suffering. And this is where uh, the breakdown happens. So Peter's context, he says, you are, he declares you are the Christ. Jesus says, blessed are to you. From that time, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, chief priests, teachers of the law, that he must be killed on the third day, raised to life. Peter takes him aside and says, never, Lord, this will never happen to you. You will, because the implicit implication is, is if you go to suffering, then I, because I'm following you, are going to have to go to suffering too. And so that's the drive behind Peter is the rejection, the rejection of the suffering and, and ultimately martyrdom to be killed. Peter said, never, Lord, this shall never happen to you. Jesus turned to him and said, get behind me, Satan. You're a stumbling block to me. And so this is the phraseology for the Jews that, that Paul picks up. And uh, uh, also from, uh, where's stumbling block from? Isaiah. Isaiah. Rock of offense. Yeah. Anyway, so you're a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. Then Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. And so this is the context of Jesus falling away. And he says, never, Lord, I'm the most radical one, etc. And Jesus says, you'll, uh, you'll definitely fall away from me. And then after the falling away, notice the language in John 21. When they come back, they're eating together. Jesus says, Peter, do you really love me more than these? Because you just said, even if everyone else falls away, I love you more than all these, and I will not fall away. And Jesus says, do you really love me more than these? And Peter's like, you know that I do. Even though I didn't love you more than these, you know that I really am zealous for you. And he says, then use your zeal for love and use your zeal for the church the same way that I use my zeal unto martyrdom for the church. Feed my sheep. And then he goes on that three times and he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. You did not take up your cross and deny yourself and do your whole life in light of the cross unto love. But when you're old, you'll stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you don't want to go. And so then John explains what this meant. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. After saying this, he says to them exactly what he said to Peter in Matthew 16. Follow me. Get behind me, Satan. You don't have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. If anyone's to come after me, he takes up his cross, he denies himself, and he follows me. So it's simply a, a commentary to Peter saying, this is the false ideology of the Judaizers that you have, that there's not suffering for those who inherit the kingdom, and that the kingdom isn't based essentially on righteousness within the heart. And, the, and therefore, your zealousness, you need to conform to, uh, to love. And the, the, uh, the imagery of another will dress you and carry you where you don't want to go is picked up in Revelation 19 with the blood of the saints who are martyred and the hallelujah that he has avenged upon Babylon, the blood of the saints. And then it goes on and says... Hallelujah, the Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come. The bride has made herself ready. The bride, in context to the rest of the book, is enduring martyrdom and persecution. It was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, which represents the righteous deeds of the saints. And so the righteous deeds of the saints, again, the whole context is martyrdom 
And God, like with Peter, he stretches out his hand and God leads him in ways of suffering and persecution, even unto the way that he would die in in martyrdom to glorify God. So, uh, two, Paul warns believers likewise to avoid those whose lifestyles deny the reality of the cross. 2 Timothy 3, but understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. People will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power, avoid such people. It's the same bit as, you know, First uh, Corinthians 5. Don't have anything to do with an immoral man. Um, but denying, uh, uh, not, not having anything to do with an immoral man outside the church, that's not what Paul's talking about, he says. But if he calls himself a brother and is immoral, then don't have anything to do with him. So uh, Philippians 3, brothers, join in imitating me. We keep our eyes on those and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you are not, and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and their glory is their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our minds are set on our reward in heaven when he will descend and he will transform our lowly bodies into his glorious body. See, ultimately the false witness will abandon the cross and everything it communicates and will seek riches, honor, and long life for self rather than embracing suffering and martyrdom as a faithful witness. The measure of the church is its production of loving martyrs. And I believe this will become more and more uh, clear in the days to come that the measure of the church is not different deeds, it's not different even signs and wonders. Matthew 7, Lord, didn't we do signs and wonders and cast out demons and etc.? It's not even that. The measure of the church, and, 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 uh, and I fear that this will be part of the false prophets that will arise and deceive many, is that there will even be signs and wonders, but the measure of the church will be its production of loving martyrs and its embracing of the cross and the reality of what is happening in the church today concerning, um, uh, concerning the, the prophetic witness of the church today is staggering in the reality of how they're living and what is being preached across the earth in the new apostolic and prophetic movement I was just talking to a guy a couple weeks ago and he said his sister is like his sister is a is a is a the primary assistant of of one of these people and he said that she is reeling because all they do day in and day out is eat and drink eat and drink and they go out and they and even many of them drink extravagantly and then they get up on stage and prophesy and hold conferences and then it's just constantly eating and drinking and indulging and eating and drinking and indulging and he like I forget how we got in the conversation but I I said something about the Babylon class and uh, and uh, and he was like Dude, that is so true. This is what my sister is going through. And I was saying they're trying to tell her, you have to get out now. That thing will end in destruction. Anyway, so um, uh, 2 Timothy 4, In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, in view of his appearing and his kingdom, I give you this charge. Preach the word concerning his appearing in the kingdom, the judgment therein. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, and encourage concerning that which is in this age before the appearing and the kingdom. Correct, rebuke, and encourage to walk worthy of our calling with great patience 
and careful instruction, for the time will come when men will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they'll gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. But you keep your head in all situations, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist concerning his appearing in kingdom, discharge all the duties of your ministry, for I'm already being poured out like a drink offering. Now there is in store for me a crown of righteousness, not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. Do, the be- do your best to come to me quickly, for Damas, because he loved this world, has deserted me. So you get the feel of the whole conversation of the anchor in the age to come, the being faithful as a witness to that, enduring hardships, etc., etc., and that many will turn aside to myths. And your two primary myths in the New Testament are one, the Judaizers, and two, the Gnostics. The Judaizers, who are the Jews, who are stumbling the suffering and the embracing of the cross as a stumbling block for the Jews who believe that righteousness is attained by circumcision, etc. It's, it's foolishness to the Gentiles who don't believe in the glory and the resurrection that the, that the prophets have prophesied. And therefore, they embrace Gnosticism. And these are the two primary things that the New Testament writers and the early church fathers are battling against on both sides, trying to hold up the suffering and the glory on both sides. And we don't have really, I mean, we read, you know, Galatians, uh, you know, somebody preaches a different gospel and he's talking about the Judaizers, let him be accursed. We don't have really any connect with this because this just isn't in our world so much. But the Gnostics, I mean, this is our world. And so uh, all those texts where you get the zeal of the Lord to contend for the faith that's been entrusted to the saints, this is our battleground in our context, is battling the Gnosticism and the different gospel. And the point is, is that it has the same end. The same end is rejection of the cross and embracing it unto martyrdom. Both of them have the same end as far as how people live out their lifestyle and gird themselves. D, this is the ultimate dangers of ideologies that equate the kingdom of God with the church. If the kingdom is now in the church, then there's no real impetus for denial of the flesh, seeking a greater inheritance in the age to come. If the kingdom is now, then the inheritance, i.e. the prosperity to the righteous, then the inheritance is now which is the driving force behind the modern church's insatiable desire for more wealth and power. And it's either the passive kingdom now, in which you have kind of just the, the, the vast majority of the modern church. Give your life to Jesus, everything will get better, he'll bless you, your best life now, etc. But the more intentional kingdom now in the dominionistic, the actual, that which is labeled kingdom now, in which it's not just your personal blessing, but it's actually God exerting power over the powers of the earth through the church, has the same outcome of not embracing the cross, which is designed as a witness to those powers that the church is trying to take over. And so, um, and so this is what it's... Uh, when I was talking to him about, you know, the, 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 his sister in the, in the kind of higher echelon of the new apostolic movement, uh, this is what he said that he said it came down to when he was talking to his sister is that it was the theology of kingdom now that was driving the whole movement and that the theology of kingdom now was what was discussed around the dinner tables while they're eating and indulging and drinking, and that God is blessing us, and that the church, the glory is just going to increase in the church more and more and more, and they were just reaping the fruit of the blessing of God more and more in all of their influence over the earth. I mean, the new apostolic and prophetic movement has its tentacles across the entire earth. It's based in the U.S., 
but it has a following across the entire earth and the tentacles of it and the influence of it really is staggering and it really is it uh the the way it is living is based on the false ideology that uh that doesn't encourage and push people to embrace the cross this false ideology results in a false witness concerning jesus in the day of the lord and will ultimately result in a great falling away at the end of the age so like matthew 16 where jesus gives the advice to the answer to this like jesus gives the advice to peter if anyone would come after me let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me For whoever would save his life in this age will lose it in the day of the Lord. But whoever loses his life for my sake in this age, not only in denying yourself, but ultimately unto taking up your cross and martyrdom, you will gain it, you will find it in the resurrection. For what will it profit a man in the judgment? 1 Corinthians 3, what will it profit a man when everything is laid bare, Romans 2, and the intentions of his heart are made known? What will it profit a man if he gains the whole world in this age and forfeits his life, forfeits eternal life in the resurrection? For the Son of Man is going to come, and he is going to repay each man according to what he's done, according to uh, the reality of, realities of his heart. And John 12 is uh, just a little bit more commentary that I'm not just inserting in the parentheses, but uh, it's, uh, it's the parallel version. The man who loves his life will lose it. The man who l- hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life in the resurrection. Whoever serves me must follow me. Where I am, my servant will also be. My father will honor him. The one who serves me will honor him in the resurrection, the one who is embraced denial of self uh, before that. So likewise, the false prophetic witness in the Old Testament exemplifies the false witness at the end of the age because the Old Testament prophesies the kingdom and therefore the, the witness uh, prophesies the kingdom. Therefore, the false witness has the same bit. But you guys are f- probably familiar with Jeremiah 23. If they had stood in my counsel, they would have proclaimed my words to the people and would have turned them from their evil ways and their evil deeds. Then the Lord said to me, The prophets are prophesying lies in my name. I have not sent them or appointed them. They are prophesying to you false visions, divinations, idolatries, and delusions of their own mind. And this is like you've heard Mike talk about Jeremiah 23, where it goes on right after that. Woe to the prophets who steal from each other, uh, words from the Lord or how's that whatever that goes down and that it's the fruit the fruit of the false prophets is that they're driven by a ministry agenda they're driven by their own honor and glory and fame and they will not embrace the cross because that is ultimately what is driving them in the situation and that's what makes them false and the theology is what makes a greenhouse for them to continue to drive in their own ministry and agenda to be honored by the people. Um, Page 14, Isaiah 9, For unto us a child is born, uh, to us a son is given. The government will be on his shoulders. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. So in context to the vision of the coming child, who will inherit the throne of David, his government will, uh, the increase of his government will never end. The Lord says, the Lord has, a, has sent a message against Jacob. It will fall on Israel and begins to denounce all the areas of wickedness within Israel for, and his point is, you are going to not going to inherit that kingdom that that child is going to set up because of all these wickednesses. Yet for all this, his anger is not turned back. His hand is his hand is still upraised, but the people have not returned to him who struck him, nor have they sought the sought the Lord Almighty. So the Lord will cut off from Israel both head and tail, both palm and branch, and reed in a single day. The elders and prominent men are the head. The prophets who teach lies are the tail. Those who guide this people mislead them. 
Those who are guided are led astray. And so I just want to lay out the 2 Corinthians 11, when Paul is talking about the true and the false apostolic ministry, because this is the Greek word for all those times, I did not send these prophets. Uh, The prophets are prophesying my name. I have not sent them or appointed to them, etc. The sending, the Greek word for sent, the Septuagint of of the Hebrew there is apostello where we get the word apostle. And so it's not, I, they are not apostles sent by the Lord. And so when Paul brings up in 2 Corinthians 11, this is the proof of apostleship. They exploit you. They take you. They slap you in the face and you don't care. You know, they, like everything is designed around getting honor, fame, and wealth from you. And you don't even care. This is the point. The true mark of an apostle is that I care for you like a father cares for his child, the same way God cares for you, and I reflect the heart of God to you. I endure hardship, persecution, all the whippings, the lashing, the shipwreck, etc., etc., etc. These are the true mark of an apostle, one sent by the Lord. For if someone comes to you, 2 Corinthians 11, and preaches a Jesus other than the Jesus we preach, or if you receive a different spirit than the, from the one you received, or a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it easily. And so this, his point, like in Galatians 1, his point, I, th- I think, is the Judaizers, even though they're in Corinth, which would play to the, but it doesn't make clear what they're pressing for. But the point is, is it's a different Jesus. And in our context, This is the driving theology behind the false apostolic and prophetic movement. It's a different Jesus, Jesus Christ, not Jesus the Messiah. It's a different spirit. You walk into the meetings and it's not not the spirit as a deposit under the resurrection. It's It's the spirit as a second blessing, as the proof of spiritual superiority as the etc etc it's not and it's all in the interpretation guys it's it's a different gospel this right here etherealized heaven is about as different of a gospel as you can get as the resurrection of the body and the kingdom of the messiah and it's because of that essentially different gospel that flows out all the differences and the difference in interpretation and therefore the grabbing of self-glory and honor. Because this is what happens. It's all in the interpretation. It's all when the Holy Spirit moves, it's the glorifying of God. It's in that moment that it matters. It's in Acts 2, the Spirit is poured out as a sign of the coming Babylon and a sign of the judgment on that thing in the day of the Lord. And in that moment of what perplexion, what is this? What does it mean that the man gets up and says, this is what it means. It means the day of the Lord is coming and you need to turn from your wickedness. It's in that moment it's not in, it's in what happens in that moment is what determines if Peter is true or false. And then it's what happens in the moment of Acts 3. The man is raised up. And in that moment, everybody's gathering around him going, it's by his great power or, or godliness that, he, that God raised this man up. And it's in the moment that Peter makes himself a true apostle and says, this is a sign of the resurrection that God glorified among you, Jesus, etc., etc. And then likewise, on the, on the Gnostic end, Acts 14, that's the whole point of Acts 14, in which you have the contextualization. That's The missions movement usually deals that, you know, uses Acts 14 as the primary issue of contextualization. The whole point there is he comes in with signs and wonders, and he tries to explain to them. He tries to take that and point it to the day of the Lord. And they have no context for the day of the Lord. And so it's very difficult. But the whole point is, is taking the activity of God. And ex- the whole point of what makes you true or false 
is the pointing of a witness to the day of the Lord. It's what makes a justice movement false is that it doesn't point to the day of the Lord. It's what makes a healing movement false is it doesn't point to the resurrection and the day of the Lord. It's what makes a teaching movement false is it doesn't point to and lead people to the day of the Lord. It's what makes everything within the church false is when it doesn't lead the people to belief in the day of the Lord and lead them into righteousness and repentance, producing fruit in accord with that day. So there, I've said it, and uh, that's, uh, for such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen masquerading as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light, It's not surprising then if the servants masquerade as servants of righteousness, their end will be what their actions deserve. So God, we ask you for mercy upon your church. We ask you this day that you would have mercy, that you would raise up apostles and prophets that would prophesy concerning the day of the Lord, that would be sent to your people to lead them and feed them in due season, knowledge of righteousness and the day of the Lord. God, we ask you for mercy that you would not let your church go her own way, God, but that you would raise up a witness of righteousness and of the day of the Lord and of truth, God. We ask you for mercy. We ask you for mercy. There's nothing we can do. We don't have any power, God. We don't have anything in ourselves. We ask you, God, you would raise up a witness with power and authority that people would listen. We ask you, God, with tears, we ask you to turn your church from living according to this age, from living according to their belly, from living according to the pleasures and indulgences and being filled with self-righteousness and indulgence and greed, God, we ask you for mercy that you would purge your people of greed and wickedness and idolatry, that you would purge your people of unrighteousness, God, that you would make your church spotless and blameless before the day of the Lord, ready to embrace suffering and martyrdom, God. We ask you for mercy. We just say no amount of knowledge or wisdom or teaching can do it. We ask you for mercy, God, that you would do it by your spirit, that you would lead people in righteousness, God. We look to you and we lean upon you. We ask you this day, come. We ask you this day, come, that you might be glorified and honored, that you might glorify your son, that you might vindicate your son and the life he lived that you might vindicate your son as the one that you have your stamp of approval on, and that you would put your stamp of approval on those who embrace the, the way of life of your son, who actually walk according to love and righteousness. God, we ask you for mercy in the name of Jesus.